morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a very tragic and somber story to kick things off today, so let's get right to it. Go ahead, Brianna. Well, Robbie, a white gunman sporting swastikas on his gun shot and killed three black victims inside a Jacksonville, Florida Dollar General on Saturday afternoon. According to the Jacksonville Sheriff, a hate crimes investigation has been opened into the murders committed by 21-year-old Ryan Christopher Palmetter, who shot and killed himself on the scene. Palmetter lived with his parents in neighboring Clay County. Per officials, he left behind a suicide note, a will, and racist manifestos indicating his, quote, hate for black people. Palmetter has no criminal history and purchased the rifle and handgun he used in the shooting legally. Jacksonville police told reporters there were, quote, no red flags. However, in 2017, Palmetter was briefly involuntarily committed under a state law called the Baker Act, which states a person can be taken to a receiving facility for involuntary examination if they are considered a danger to themselves or others. Now, police may confiscate firearms during the process of enforcing a Baker Act, but individuals with a Baker Act on their history are still permitted to purchase and own guns in the state of Florida. In the fallout from Saturday's horror, Governor Ron DeSantis traveled to Jacksonville to offer his support to the affected community, but uh, it seems he wasn't wanted there. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is here. We're going to ask the governor here to come down and turn the mark. Not a warm reception uh, for the governor there, obviously. Um, so I was, you know, reading more about this, uh, the situation, obviously, with the, the shooter and the mental health episode and the Baker Act. Uh, so the Baker Act does allow, as we've said, if you have guns at the time the uh, Baker Act situation happens, you do have those weapons confiscated and you have some difficulty getting them back. But, and a judge can... Um, bar you from purchasing weapons for a period of time following this kind of episode. But, you know, whether that happened in this case is presumably it didn't happen in this case because um, I'm reading a local news stories about gun dealers who do routinely not sell weapons to people because of Baker Act issues. Um, maybe, uh, and I think, I think the sheriff suggested in a CNN article that perhaps the mental health incident with the killer, the alleged killer, um, was not, maybe it wasn't serious enough to be, like, officially registered that that's what would happen. Obviously, we, you know, more we need to know about that whole thing. Um, I, I don't, even though I support Second Amendment rights, I don't personally have a huge issue um, denying gun rights to people with, um, you know, previously documented mental health issues that led to them being involuntarily committed or something like that. But uh, whether yeah. that could well, have actually, look, you know, oh, enforced more strictly could have helped here. I don't know. I, I you know, I take that. I take you saying that, you know, uh, I, I internalize you saying that. But the reality is there are a lot of people who feel differently about that. Right. And they're constantly trying to weigh the civil liberty, liberties interest of having access to firearms, even if, you know, if you're depressed or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean you shouldn't be able to 
access a gun, if the rationale is one's ability to defend yourselves against the government, et cetera, then that is true of people who suffer from mental illness. And mental illness is such a broad term that covers so many people that it could be a real bar against people accessing firearms. So certainly there are going to be people in the audience who dis disagree with that. I'm not one of them, but there are going to be people who disagree with that. I do think there's two issues here that are getting conflated in a way that's very frustrating to the public. There is a question of mental health issues, which, as I've stated, is real and common. And there is a reality that the overwhelming majority of people with mental health issues never kill anyone. Now, there's a third thing, which is that those people with mental health issues who do, do kill people are potentially choosing and targeting different people for various reasons. And so the third prong of this is whether there's a question as to why this person targeted uh, black people. He specifically went to an HBCU in the area, a historically black college in the area, was denied admission, and then pivoted to going to the Dollar General store. And we don't have access to his manifestos or anything like that, but the police chief articulated that this is someone who hated black people, and that was what was driving his attack, that he specifically was targeting them. And as we explained, he also had swastikas all over uh, his rifle. So there's no real question that this was a um, attack that was motivated by uh, ra racial extremism. That being said, those are three different buckets of things to try to resolve. What do you do about racial terrorism? What do you do about mental health issues in the intersection with guns? And then what do you do about kind of mental health issues, broadly speaking? And I think that part of why Ron DeSantis was being booed is that in the wake of some of these gun tragedies, there sometimes does feel like a reluctance to confront the what do you do about the intersection of guns and mental health part of it and saying just mental health, mental health, mental health, ignoring there's a huge difference between mo most of the population who has mental health issues that never does anything that's heinous. And also, what do you do about the fact that people specifically are being targeted on the basis of their race? Um, I think that part of why he was probably booed there is because the perception of him in the state is that he has made it an increasingly hostile place for black people, as he has targeted specifically black studies, um, black history, uh, as something that's illegitimate in the state school system, and a move that many black people feel like is attack on the validity of our history and on our existence what in the country. What you said about um, you know, mentally ill people, that the vast majority of them don't harm themselves or anyone else, I mean, that's true of people who hold negative views of black people, of racist people, right? The, it's it's yeah. exact, the overwhelming majority don't act out in um, violent racial terrorism, as I agree, obviously, seems to be all evidence points to that being the case here. Um, you know, you can't even, you can't, um, even, you know, even deeply racist views are, you know, protected in a broad sense under our um, under our First Amendment, under our tolerance, even for intolerant um, ways of thinking. Um, look, I, I, I think it's you can disagree with DeSantis's education policies. Uh, I know a lot of black people do. He was obviously booed there by people, you know, who don't agree with um, the changes to the curriculum and all that. Um, I'm, I'm having a hard time drawing really any sort of causal. I know some people want to draw a causal arrow there and say, oh, that's, you know, we're doing this and that's why these things are happening. Um, but again, I mean, I say this every, and just because we have a lot of these things to talk about or seemingly a lot of these things to talk about does not mean that extremism based in racism or ideological um, views is motivating more violence than it was before. You know, we could Right, we could fill our entire day talking about everyone who got, you know, murdered in the country over the last 
few weeks, the vast majority, you know, 99% of them, for no reason other than crime and desperation yeah. and poverty. I do think it's a it's a very attenuated causal link, given, to your point, how random these kind of events are. But I do think it would be helpful if we had a, cli a political climate where people were saying things like, whatever our political disagreements, black people are our brothers and sisters in America, gay people are our brothers and sisters, we're all Americans together, we should support each other and love each other and never cause each other harm. There are political leaders historically who have said and done those kinds of things, even when they don't always agree with mm -hmm. people who are, let's say, on the left or end of the spectrum. And I feel a real void of politicians who are willing to say, black people aren't bad, black people aren't evil, black people aren't violent, black people don't deserve to be the subject of your hate, which should all be really innocuous, easy statements for people to make about black people and any other group uh, in this country, obviously. Um, and when that, those kinds of statements aren't offered up, um, it, it, that, that absence, I think, is noted by people, and maybe it's too much to read into that, that you're tacitly endorsing behavior like the, the tragedy that we saw mm. uh, over the weekend. Um, but it, I think just a little bit of affirmative, uh, before it comes to this, before a tragedy happens and then everybody chops out and says, of course, you shouldn't murder people, a little bit of preemptive, we have to be able to disagree without devaluing each other's lives is important. And in fact, I do think there is a lot of rhetoric that even if it cannot be blamed for this kind of behavior directly, does, I think, very clearly devalue the lives and the experiences of other different kinds of people in this country. Mm. Well, GOP presidential wonder kid Vivek Ramaswamy blamed liberal media and institutions for the shooting. Let's watch. This was very much apparently racially motivated. Uh, the sheriff there said point blank that this shooter had uh, had manifestos coming, three manifestos, and said specifically that he went to this dollar store with the intent of killing black people. I think that is heinous and deserves to be called out for what it is. The reality is we've created such a racialized culture in this country in the last several years that right as the last few burning embers of racism were burning out, we have a culture in this country largely created by media and establishment and universities and politicians that throw kerosene on that racism. And I can think of no better way to fuel racism in this country than to take something away from other people on the basis of their skin color. So this was very inflammatory to folks because what it sounds like Vivek is saying is that the cause of a racist attack like this is the politics of people you might not agree with them, but people like Indy X Kendi or whatever, other Black Lives Matter leader, whoever it is, who in their view is arguing for racial inclusion, for racial equality, et cetera. Vivek says taking things away from white people, which is what his, he perceives that, all, that project to be about, that taking things away from white people is making white people angry and then they do things like this. So it's ultimately the, da the, blame, the blame falls on black people themselves, people mm -hmm. who see themselves as advocating for black interests. And the implication seems to be, well, don't fight for equality or, don't, or do it in some other way that I approve of or else you maybe deserve. I mean, he didn't obviously say that, but that's tacit in the idea of placing you know, the blame on them as opposed to the hundreds of years of white supremacy that existed in this country long before we ever heard of DEI. I don't think that's actually what he was saying, although I, I also don't agree with what he was saying. I, I think what in blaming the media and the universities and the establishment, I think he's getting at um, a criticism that I have it as well, that the, um, um, you know, lumping people into identity-based groups is very, is, um, is, 
can can reinforce um, racist thinking or racial stereotyping in ways that um, that backfire. I think that's what he was getting at. Obviously, it is very it is wrong to blame. I mean, just as you know, liberals in, in the media, including probably um, the types of uh, people interviewing him there on CNN and MSNBC, will be saying that things like what happened in Jacksonville are the fault of conservative media or conservative pundits or Republican institutions, just as I think that is wrong to say that. I mean, people are responsible for their own, the, their own actions, the violence they create, the bad views they have. You're individually responsible for you, is my philosophy. So just as it's wrong to pin it on, you know, Tim Pool or Fox News or something, but he was doing the same thing there because he was pinning it on the university well, or the mainstream media, and I would say that is also um, that is also seeking blame and making excuses for what was ultimately the fault of that person. Look, there's an argument that we should never think about societal impact of anything because everybody's responsible for themselves. I know that. Most people don't believe that on both sides of the aisle, because we hear conservatives making arguments about how video games are poisoning kids' heads, and TV and Will and Grace is poisoning kids' heads, and having a gay pride parade is poisoning kids' heads. There is a belief that things that are happening on the cultural zeitgeist affect people in their behavior. Everybody believes that, but for better or for worse, on both sides of the aisle. What I would say here is that if you raise the example of some of these other mass shooters recently, it might be that we look in this guy's manifesto and we find out that Ibram Kendi X is what's really motivating him and making him very, very angry, and that he had never heard of white supremacy and never thought to hate a black person until he encountered some DEI materials. Mm -hmm. You might be able to tell from the tone of my voice that I'm very skeptical that reading White Fragility would mm -hmm. drive him to want to murder a black person without some other foundational beliefs that he had been indoctrinated with or come across in life about the inherent inferiority of black people. And regrettably, in the United States of America, there is no shortage of that kind of content. And if the other manifestos that we have had access to are any indication, then, they are, then we will find that there is a lot of drawing on other kinds of resources that aren't in, in Ibram X. Kennedy to fuel his hatred. For example, the Great Replacement Theory, which has been advanced by Tucker Carlson very explicitly on his show, or weird phenotype uh, this, the, the Buffalo shooter had those weird uh, side profiles of Jewish people and black people explaining how our, our, our skulls were the wrong shape and were evidence of us being stupid and violent and bad in all the ways. Um, and that stuff is not coming from even Max Kendi. That's coming from a long legacy of white supremacy. And I think a lot of us would find it to be much more honest if folks like Vivek Ramaswamy were to engage with all of that history that's out there instead of finding materials that have only sprung up in the last 10 years or so as the basis and evidence for a, a, a pattern of anti-black racism, anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism that has existed for a much longer period of time. All right, we will continue to follow the story and we'll have more rising right after this. President Biden has signed off on a new funding request for a revamped COVID-19 vaccine that, quote, works. Let's watch. Mr. President, can you say anything about the uptick of COVID cases and the new variant? Yes, I can. Matter of fact, I signed off this morning on a proposal we have 
to present to the Congress a request for additional funding for a new vaccine that is necessary, that works. Tentatively, not decided finally yet, tentatively, it is recommended that, would likely be recommended that everybody get it, no matter what they got before. Biden's announcement comes amid a spike in COVID cases and hospitalizations around the country. However, the president's ask will likely face an uphill battle in the upper chamber. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul already signaled his opposition, posting on X, quote, So to recap, one, POTUS is saying the vaccine they're currently promoting and they mandated does not work. Two, he wants more funding for another one. That's a no from me. The rise in COVID cases also prompted the reemergence of mass mandates in some places, but people might want to slow down before going that route. A new study reshared by the National Institutes, National Institutes of Health reveals that N95 masks may expose users to dangerous levels of toxic chemicals that have been linked to seizures and even cancer. Now, this study was led by researchers from Jeonbuk National University in South Korea, and it found that some disposable masks contain more than eight times the U.S. recommended limit of toxic volatile organic compounds, or TVCS. They also noted that the level of toxicity can be decreased by simply letting the mask air out for 30 minutes, before use. So this is, you know, just one study. Obviously take it with a grain of salt as you should take all these studies that say masks are great, masks are terrible. You know, we've got a, a vaccine. We've got a variety of findings on all of these things and it's still kind of inconclusive, which I think should, should um, push people away from making very definitive or, you know, declaratory statements about this, this is what works and this is what everybody not only should do but must be forced to do. Um, in terms of the vaccine, do, does Pfizer or Johnson & Johnson or whoever it is really need more taxpayer dollars to develop their next vaccine? Please go ahead and develop it. And I don't have a problem with them, you know, reaping the profits of the vaccine as long as it's not forced on anybody. It's not paid for by us. But that's not the way it's gone. Obviously, in recent history, it's, it has been forced on people. Um, I, I can't imagine this is a this is something that a lot of the American people, at least conservatives, want to do. Uh, but here we are again. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, what warrants government invested uh, investment in a particular yeah. pharmaceutical? I, I suppose the idea would be if there is a broad public health interest in having it. For example, the American economy shut down for a year, huge impacts as a consequence of this global pandemic. It wasn't an American phenomenon, obviously, and the economic consequences of it were felt around the world in various ways. Um, and I think the question is, if we know it did it once before, it's a, there's a possibility of um, new variants that could potentially put us in a situation where the disease was as deadly as it was prior to the first vaccines, which did work. They did work. They were useful for that variant, and they continued to work to prevent people from having the hospitalization and death. So I do. I would push back against Rand Paul's comments there. I don't think that saying that, articulating the idea that we want vaccines that work better, which I think that Joe Biden was getting at, isn't an admission of some kind that the current vaccines don't work. They don't do what we would like them to do, which is to prevent the spread of COVID, but that's exactly why they want more funding. So, you know, I can I can see a world where, yeah, I think it would be justified to give government funding to provide a vaccine that actually performs that specific function. One, because it would prevent 
COVID from ever being an issue again. We could just get to the bottom of this and end it because we would be able to stop the transmission. And two, I think it would really what? re-enhance re- the, 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 the faith that people have in these kind of medical interventions. Why would in the, the next place. vaccine be any better at shutting down the spread of COVID than the last? I mean, by the time it comes out, this is the problem. By the time the vaccine comes out, it's a different variant than what um, than what that vaccine is tailored to. I mean, this is an issue with the boosters right now. Honestly, if the government wants to do something that would probably be useful, they should probably work toward cutting down on whatever bureaucratic or regulatory process for approval for these things so that people can, people who want them, again, I'm not making anyone take them, but people who really want to take them or feel the risk of COVID or whatever new variant is more threatening to them, be able to take them um, earlier. Whatever can be done to speed up that process is probably what should be done. Wasn't the argument during COVID that people felt like the vaccine was rushed and they had all these concerns about the health implications of it because some of those protections were Eliminated that in order to get it to the market more quickly. Certainly, some people's argument. Um, it just it does it does start to feel sometimes like I'm open to a lot of people's concerns, but it does start to feel sometimes like there's a pinata swing in the middle of the room, and everyone will just attack it from whatever direction to make some point about how much they don't like well, COVID. People, well, those people so didn't whatever. Like, they thought it was unsafe and untested and rushed. And it was being forced on people. I'm not going to force it on anyone. Okay, I so think it should be up man, to you. There's no mandate. So now the question is how much government resources should go into this. I, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an expert. I don't know what the limits of science are. I don't, mm. if, 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 you were t- if the scientists told me that, that it was possible, if they put their minds to it for long enough, to create what is it called a sterilizing vaccine that actually neutralized spread, then I would definitely you, think that was worth Would you worth- believe them? Yes, I would believe it if they published scientific studies and demonstrated that that's the case. Of course. Why, why no, no, if they, ju- if, they just, if they just said, yes, this is the next round of funding we need, and then we're going to have, I mean, like, think about how we've, uh, we've talked about Bill Gates, you know, pivoting from, from a vaccine to, uh, like, an inhaler is his next dream, it, because it's just, it's just, like, what the company's selling and what the company wants no, to I do. No, I think you have to demonstrate it, just like anybody who tries to make any product it didn't get funding yeah. for it, has to demonstrate the efficacy of the product. Now, people do lie, and there are scams. There is this allegation now that Vivek Ramaswamy made his money by buying a drug that had already failed multiple clinical trials, changing the name of it, having his mother, who's a doctor, writing a, uh, a, a new survey, not like a new research, but basically a new survey that indicated the drug could be more promising, having the stock go up on the drug, profiting from that, and then the drug ultimately fails anyway. So there, there's definitely scams, and it's incumbent on the people who approve these things, to, who have scientific knowledge, to actually assess the possibility uh, of these interventions being successful. I'm not the person to do that. And maybe there's a good reason not to trust people who are in government currently to accurately make those kind of assessments. I think that's a fair critique. But am I just categorically against the idea that it could be scientifically possible to make a sterilizing vaccine and that that wouldn't be an enormous public health benefit? No. So, I mean, I think the question is not should the government fund this, but are we, can we have some transparency about the processes um, that scientists are undertaking that, le- that might lead us more confidence or less confidence in the this funding actually leading to a good result. And then the other question I would ask is, if the likelihood of actually getting a sterilizing vaccine is relatively low, would some of that money be better spent improving air quality in public spaces, getting um, uh, air air filters and things in, in schools and the like? That will help us deal with the situation that we have now. Did you see, there was an infuriating story in the New York Times this morning from 
my least favorite, um, coronavirus reporter Apoorva Mandavili on the state of the air filtration issue in schools. It's, it's all about that. Uh, you would be very interested in this article uh, about how you know schools closed last time. If there's another wave, can we just keep them open this time if we improve the air quality? But it's, a, it's very frustrating because, as she acknowledges in the article, um, $200 billion was allotted for this purpose. Another $300 billion was given to state governments, and one of the things they can spend it on is this. You can't argue the money's not there. The money was set aside yeah. for this. It just didn't happen. Yeah, I, I would love to see some of the people who have been keeping the fight for civil liberties with respect to COVID issues alive, mm -hmm. really drilling down, trying to do some investigative And now we've research had time. I mean, obviously you can't, what it, it takes there. a little bit of time, but now it's been, it's and, been a and while. pressuring the Biden administration to do more, to put those things in these public spaces, including schools. That's, I think, a really useful um, path yeah. for people's political energies. And it's, it's pushing the government to do more to protect people, particularly our kids, as opposed to telling them just to do absolutely nothing, which I think could really backfire depending on the course of this virus. We will continue to monitor that and we will be back with more Rising in just a minute. Green Party 2024 candidate Cornell West criticized Bernie Sanders earlier this month for his 2024 endorsement of President Joe Biden. Let's play some of that. I love the brother and, and, and you know, you even in love people have deep disagreements about these things. But I think, again, he's he's fearful of the neo-fascism of Trump. People look at Biden, they don't really want to tell the full truth. He's created the best economy that we can get. Is this the best that we can get? You're going to tell that lie to the people mm -hmm. just for Biden to win? Now this weekend, Senator Sanders responded to these criticisms on CNN. Let's watch that. So this certainly is not the best economy that we can create. That was what my speech was about yesterday. We've got to join the rest of the industrialized world, guarantee health care at all. We've got to cut the cost of prescription drugs uh, in half. We've got to raise the minimum wage to at least 17 bucks an hour. We've got to build the affordable housing we desperately need. But where I disagree with my good friend, uh, Cornell West, is I think in these really very difficult times, where there is a real question whether democracy is going to remain in the United States of America. You know, Donald Trump is not somebody who believes in, in democracy, whether women are going to be able to continue to control their own bodies, uh, whether we have social justice in America, we end bigotry. Around that, I think we have got to bring the entire progressive community uh, to defeat Trump or whoever the Republican nominee will be support Biden, but at the same time, which is what I did yesterday, is demand that the Democratic Party, not just Biden, have the guts to take on corporate greed and the massive levels of income and wealth inequality that we see today. Yeah, Bernie was in Iowa, I believe, recently making the case for Biden. Um, he's being, yeah, Biden is summoning every uh, weapon at his disposal to make the case that you should not be disaffected or disillusioned or disappointed or any other disword with uh, the administration. <laughs> and uh, it's amazing. They all, the squad members all obviously, now you're uh, your you're former boss too. Um, back in, back in Biden, feel no, uh, he doesn't even sound pretty like conflicted about it. Like, yeah. like I would love to yeah. support Cornell West, but it's just like, well, 
No, we got to back Biden. We got to beat. We got to beat Trump. So here, here is I think what's so interesting. Bernie Sanders seems to sidestep in some ways the crux of Cornell West's criticism, which is if you admit that we don't have the best possible economy under Biden, that Biden could have done other things and done them differently to put Americans in a better position economically than they are now, then where have been the calls to do exactly that? And what mechanisms are at your disposal as a senator at the United States Senate to pressure Joe Biden to do some of the things in that list that Bernie articulated there. He referenced a $17 minimum wage. Well, that sounds great, but even the $15 minimum wage that was Biden's promise and part of Bernie's demand as he was conceding back in 2020, one of the only things that Bernie very specifically asked for during that first uh, what was it, a Zoom call between uh, Biden and Bernie in the spring of 2020, was Biden's firm promise to pass a $15 minimum wage. And people who only consume you know, mainstream corporate media might not realize this, but it absolutely was possible for Joe Biden to keep the $15 minimum wage as part of, that, as part of his first COVID relief bill. But I don't know if you guys remember, I talk about this a lot on my show, there was this whole bait and switch where the parliamentarian, this unelected person who has no control over the Senate activities, who just gives advisory positions, a person who Bush fired, I think, a couple of times in order to do things like expand drilling in the Arctic, et cetera. She issued an advisory opinion saying you couldn't include the $15 minimum wage in that must-pass bill. So Chuck Schumer took it out. And that's how we got that whole dance where Bernie Sanders tried to pass, uh, tried to get it reattached to the bill, but it went from being a 50 plus one vote as part of the budget reconciliation process when it was all lumped into the one major uh, COVID relief bill to be needing 60 votes to get it back into the bill. So it was a hurdle that he couldn't overcome. So we never even got an up-down vote on a very popular policy like a $15 minimum wage, a, po a policy that's so popular that Florida in 2020, as it voted for Donald Trump, also passed a $15 minimum wage by ballot measure. So knowing that, knowing that Chuck Schumer and with, I'm sure, absolutely Joe Biden's consent, rigged the process to make sure that we weren't going to have an up-down vote by Congress on a $15 minimum wage, is now sitting here telling progressives and working class people across the country not to look at third party alternatives, seeing with their own eyes how the Democratic Party has consistently rigged the process along the way. And not only rigged the process on various policy matters, like a $15 minimum wage, but on elections as a whole, where you see the, the, the Democratic Party saying we're not going to have debates. Seeing the Democratic Party trying to change the debate schedule, uh, sorry, the uh, primary schedule to advantage Joe Biden specifically. Uh, see them try to knock ranked choice voting off of the ballot whenever it rears its head because the people understand that they don't want to be constrained by the possibility of electing Trump. They want to be able to vote for their favorite person and then vote for their number two to stop Trump, if, if you will. But the Democratic Party knows that if they allow ranked choice voting, then they won't be able to get on TV and do what Bernie Sanders just did, which is to use the the threat of the big bad guy on the other side as a cudgel to prevent them from voting their values. On minimum wage, what happens if my labor is not worth $15 an hour? Maybe it's only worth $13 an hour. That's an interesting question that you can take up with the people of Florida that voted for a $15 minimum wage. Well, I, Although it's not a really a mystery because most, most states in the United States of America have voluntarily lifted their minimum wage well above the $7.50 an hour uh, where it's been since 2009, the longest period in American history without a, a minimum wage Probably a lot raise. of people don't want to compete with maybe younger, greener 
people who are willing to take less money and the employer will be willing to pay them and it has a nice little consensual arrangement. The government comes in and says, no, you can't do that. Not my favorite policy, as you know. But Yeah. So the, the question is, you know, is, is Bernie Sanders even going to be especially effective in trying to whip his base to this end? Because obviously there's a very online part of the left that I am a part of and I visualize who were very were furious at Bernie Sanders over the weekend for these comments. But of course, the, his enormous coalition that had about 30 percent of the Democratic Party vote share in 2020, who might turn on the TV and look at this, I think that they will credibly just follow his lead. And is that a problem for an emergent left movement? Well, now during a different appearance over on MSNBC, Sanders and host Chuck Todd traded barbs over the state of the 2024 race. Are you trying to discourage Cornell West from running? Well, I've known Cornell for many, many years. He's a very independent mind guy. He will do what he wants to do. Uh, I just think, again, uh, I think Cornell or anybody else can play an important role now about raising uh, issues that are not always discussed. But at the end of the day, I think the progressive community in general and the American people yeah. have got to make a decision as to whether we stand for democracy or authoritarianism or whether or not we're going to yeah. represent working class families. One, and, one of your chief yeah, political I advisors yeah, is concerned that Cornell West is being taken advantage of by maybe people that simply want his name on the ballot. Do you have those concerns? I, I really haven't followed it that closely. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, exaggerate anything Bernie Sanders said there because it wasn't all that inflammatory. But, you know, he's talking about the importance of democracy, democracy, democracy. But maybe it would be better if there was not, if there were fewer candidates. How is that a Democrat? Like, I mean, obviously, there's going to be a Green Party nominee, like the Green Party, the Libertarian Party, the other third parties aren't going to just, like, sit this one out. And if you really think it's important for them to sit this one out, are you advancing a Democratic argument and, or an argument in favor of democracy? Maybe you're advancing a Democratic as in the Democratic Party argument, but you're not, you're not really <laughs> defending the people's Look, right to it, choose. It like and I don't, again, I'm not beating up on him because he, he, he was, the, the moderators wanted him to go that direction. He went a little bit that direction, but. It sounds like the kind of democracy advanced by our great ally Zelensky, who shut down opponent political parties yes. uh, in order to advance his own interests. Yes, and independent media, et cetera. It's, it's not the kind of democracy that I value. And it is disappointing uh, to hear Bernie Sanders say that, specifically because you can go back, people were circulating a clip of him in maybe the 80s or 90s, making exactly the argument that leftists are arguing today about the need for democracy and the value of third parties and why the spoiler effect is um, malarkey. Mm. All right, we will have more rising right after this. Please stay with us. Does the American foreign policy blob hate Russia for being a Christian nation? Well, that's what Tucker Carlson thinks, and he suggested as much in a recent uh, speech. Let's watch that. They hate Hungary. And they hate it not because of what it's done, but because of what it is. It's a Christian country, and they hate that. And that's the truth. And nobody wants to say it, but it's true. And it's not a particularly provocative Christian country. I don't think most Hungarians go to church. It's not a theocracy. You're not required to believe in the catechism to live here. It's nothing like that. It's a soft Christian country, the softest ever. 300 years ago, people would look at modern Hungary and say, that's not a Christian country. But by modern standards, it's one of the last countries that identifies as a nation built on Christian precepts. Again, not imposing them on anyone else. But that is enough to incite our policymakers in the United States. And that is exactly why they hate Russia, by the way. 
I'm not a fan of Russia. And, and if I was, I wouldn't admit it to a, to a Hungarian audience. Meanwhile, Utah Senator Mitt Romney seems to be okay with the war in Ukraine going on indefinitely because, quote, we're not losing any lives. The single most important thing we can do to strengthen ourselves relative to China is to, is to see Russia defeated in Ukraine because they're allies and, uh, and Russia being weakened weakens their ally China. I mean, so, uh, and, and by the way, uh, being able to, to take an amount which equals what, about 5% of our military budget, about actually less than 5% of our military budget each year to help the Ukrainians is about, about the best national defense spending I think we've ever done. We're losing no lives in Ukraine. And the Ukrainians are fighting heroically against Russia that has 1,500 nuclear weapons aimed at us. It's like, so we are, we're uh, diminishing and devastating the Russian military uh, for a, a very small amount of money relative to the, what we spend in the rest of defense. It is very much in, in America's national interest, in our national interest to help Ukraine. And the best thing we can do for America is to see people who have nuclear weapons aimed at us getting weaker. All right, let's start with Romney and then circle back to Hungary. Um, it does not fill me uh, with that much relief to know that we're spending so much money elsewhere that, uh, that Ukraine is a drop in the bucket uh, compared by comparison. Right. Um, I, I think, look, I don't have, I, a lot of people on the right really despise Mitt Romney by this point. I can't work up much general anger or animosity toward him. They hate him because he's Christian. They hate, him because, they hate him because he's Mormon. <laughs> but he, look, his foreign policy views, and in particular his Ukraine views, I'm sorry, I, I think are, are both back. I mean, I don't even really have to like make this case because that is all, uh, most Republicans, the overwhelming majority, 70% of the Republican base agrees not with the neoconservative uh, Ukrainian foreign policy views of most of the candidates, but with with and with Mitt Romney, but with people who are arguing that we have given Ukraine enough support. Um, this is not helping. It's not helping to prolong the war. Yes, it's good that no Americans are dying, but Ukrainians are dying. Maybe they would still be dying if Russia is inv invading. I understand that. I'm not naive about that. But can we structure an actual resolution that it maybe involves a cessation of Ukrainian territory to bring an end to, to this war? Something that is going to happen eventually anyway. So is it going to happen today? Or is it going to happen after 50,000 more people are killed? Or is it going to be happen after the entire country is overrun and occupied, in which case maybe it will be more than that? It's going yeah. to happen at some point. We're, like, we're supposed to be real like foreign policy realist people. I agree. I, I'm not international humanitarianism. We're, let's just do realism. What's best for us? What's best for Ukraine? Is it worth spending this money and is it worth dragging out the process of Ukraine's destruction to save a sliver of territory that has a lot of Russian-speaking people and wants to be part of Russia or independent anyway? I don't think it is. Sure. <laughs> well, I would, say, I, would, I would push back a little and say, I don't think that what's best for us should control because the us isn't you and I. It is American imperial project. Mm -hmm. So I think that there are a lot of shared interests with regular citizens around the world, none of whom want there to be all of these endless wars and conflict that are generated by financial institutions like the IMF that are being used as tools by leading governments like ourselves. That aside, I think that the tell here is twofold, to your point. One is that it's an open admission and an acknowledgment as they've been doing periodically throughout, but it's a very open acknowledgement that this is all about a proxy war and weakening the other nuclear power. The interests of Ukrainians aren't even a second thought in that whole 
dialogue, the whole monologue that he just uh, set out there. And two, there's an admission that as long as American lives aren't on the line, that the moral ethical implications of engaging in this prolonged conflict don't matter here at home. Right. And that, what's so frustrating is that so many people who have been on our side of this and arguing for the end of this conflict and that America should be fueling this conflict artificially to last longer than it would have ordinarily without negotiation because it's in our best interest to, to weaken Russia, the state's best interest to, to weaken Russia, we've been the ones characterized as being inhumane and indifferent to the interests of, of Ukrainians in our lives. But what you hear there from Mitt Romney is an open admission that as long as the bodies on the ground are Ukrainian bodies and not American bodies, then it's at, of no cost to us. If you have a different conception of the world where you see ourselves as global citizens that should be aligning against these horrible, corrupt, powerful governments, then you see exactly how callous it is to be told as American citizens that you should not care as long as the people on the ground don't have a, a passport. And I got to say, that does not sound like a humanitarian mission. All right. Let's circle back to Hungary now. <laughs> now, look, I have a, gr a lot of esteem for Hungary and the Hungarian people and their contributions to the preservation of, um, of Christianity and Catholicism, um, coming to the aid of the last great Catholic monarch of Europe, Maria Theresa, and helping her keep her claim in the, uh, what was the War of the Austrian Succession and rebuff <laughs> those Prussian invaders uh, and, and you know, put Protestantism in its place. So, you know, mad props to Hungary. Hungary and what it's done for, for, for the church. Um, that said, today, um, like Hungary is not, actually, as Tucker concedes in that clip, Hungary's like church attendance is lower than most of America and Russia's. Mm -hmm. um, their abortion rates are higher than most of America. Mm -hmm. um, they're poorer places than most of America. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of conservatives, conservatives used to be the, or thought of, I guess, maybe just during Bush fervor as like, like the rah-rah patriotic side, um, you, you can you can have enough. Look, you, can, you should have respect for Hungary. That's fine. But they're like, let's be real about what the like. This is not some. I, I don't. I, I don't know that it's exactly the like Christian or Catholic paradise that some in this natcon or more. Yeah, weird it's bizarre, Robbie. You know, all about it's Hungary. just so bizarre. Know. So one, I also, I have a lot of fond feelings of Hungary. One of my best friends from high school is Hungarian. I was there for her wedding in, I think, 2015. She got married in one of the most famous uh, churches in the country. We had to cover up, and we all were very respectful in all of those things once we were in there. But it certainly wasn't some bastion of deep-seated religious belief that was happening within the walls uh, of that cathedral, at least while uh, us folks were in there. But the bigger point is this. America is overwhelmingly a Christian nation. We have never had a president who wasn't Christian. God bless Bernie for trying and Marianne Williamson for trying again. But we have a country that is 63% Christian, according to a poll that I just pulled up. And the bulk of the remainder is not some other religion. It's just 23% unaffiliated. So the idea that there's these secret anti-Christian values and beliefs that are dictating American foreign policy, when like everybody is either Christian or nothing at all, um, it strains credulity from my perspective. Yeah. All right. Well, a new CNN report alleges that Russian intelligence is operating a systemic, uh, sorry, a systematic program to launder pro-Kremlin propaganda into the United States through private relationships between Russian operatives and unwitting 
Western targets, according to newly declassified intelligence. In response, the Gray Zone's Max Blumenthal wrote on Twitter, CNN exists to provide us intelligence with a vehicle for laundering its propaganda. Its top hosts enthusiastically manipulate the American public on behalf of their handlers in Langley, Foggy Bottom, and the Pentagon. This is pure projection. Right. This is, I mean, the obsession with the idea that Russian narratives are, are permeating our awareness. I mean, they, they just say just mundane observations of the reality of the current war effort Correct. is labeled by by NBC to be um, somehow Putin talking points have made their way into Western discourse. How dare they? It's, it's just it's, like if you say the yeah. sky is blue, but Vladimir Putin agrees that the sky is blue, you are now you are now contributing to Russian based disinformation because the underlying information obviously is true. The sky is blue, but it's it, yeah. it is Russia agrees with that. So it's disinformation. It's so scary. Oh, this stuff is being framed as so scary that I think I found my next uh, Halloween costume. It's oh, yeah. going to be Russian narratives. Ooh, Ooh. spooky. <laughs> uh, I'm going to be Ken. We know. I'm going to be Ken. We know. All right. More rising for you right after this. In a one-on-one -on -one chat between journalist Glenn Greenwald and 2024 GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, the political novice explained why he stands in the minority when it comes to funding the war in Ukraine among the candidates. Let's watch. Donors. The donor class of the Republican Party fundamentally disapproves of the message that I delivered on that stage. And it's the one thing that's holding Ron DeSantis back, right, because his campaign is run by his super PAC, which is extremely well-funded, <laughs> far better right, funding right, than right, I had right, in this right. campaign, even for all the checks I've personally written. And so that holds him back. But the rest of the field is completely, as I said in the stage, it made a lot of people mad, bought and paid for uh -huh. by the donor class, frankly, some of which is bipartisan. It's the same donor class that swings in the other direction at times, too. I don't think they have convictions. I think that these politicians on the stage yesterday are puppets. I'm deeply convinced of uh -huh. that. I mean, you interact with people, they're good people. They're fine, but they're vessels. Right. Listless vessels, if we may use the word, uh -huh. of super PACs. Uh -huh. Over on Fox News, a panel of voters declared Vivek the winner of last week's primary debate. Let's watch. And really early to tell us who they liked last night. Beth, who'd you like and why? One word answer, please. Nikki Haley. She was strong. Okay. How about you, Sammy? Vivek, Ukraine. Okay. How about you, Mary Josephine? Uh, Vivek, he's not a politician. Okay. He was, yeah, a lot of people are saying that. Caleb, how about you? Vivek, because he brought the energy. All right. And Johnny? I'll say Vivek, two words. Exciting and genuine. Ramaswamy may be conservative media's new darling, but over on liberal media, he's facing some new pushback. Here he is during a clash with CNN's Dana Bash. But can There's you a have an intellectually have, honest conversation of who you are, when you accuse you have to her be able of to have being your own a opinion. grand wizard Let's of have the, the KKK? Debate. Can you have that intellectually that honest discussion is, with that kind of rhetoric? Yes, I can, Dana, because the point, the point I'm highlighting is that even the people who, in good spirit, we all agree that the KKK was an awful organization that is a toxic stain in our national history. So given that we can start from that point of agreement, now that allows us to say, well, who actually sounds more like that organization today? The people who are calling for more racial discrimination on the basis of skin color. So yes, I think that is an but intellectually it's not useful about starting point for a provocative like discussion whole, that we need to have in this country. The whole country. point is and the I think KKK the, I think the reality, wasn't just Dana, about rhetoric. We have to speak openly They lynched people. They murdered people. They raped people. They burned their and homes. And that was wrong. Simply that was because obviously wrong. Of 
So wrong. Okay. Obvious, so that, that, again, that is obviously a wrong thing. If you want to have an intellectual discussion. So let's start with the idea that Vivek Ramaswamy benefited the most from the debate. I have seen a lot of people colloquially, like in, in the ether, seem to be saying that. Um, and I probably would have made the same assessment uh, if asked who were the winners and losers after the debate, with a slight caveat that I think, I think I said this on the show on Thursday, that the biggest gain, it seemed to me, from any given candidate, given the, the gap between what I expected of the performance and what they actually delivered, was actually Nikki Haley, not Ramaswamy. I did see a recent poll that was put out, I think, uh, yesterday from insider polling that seemed to reflect that with Haley making the biggest gains in the polls as compared to Vivek Ramaswamy. Now, there have been a number of polls. I think he has inched ahead in all of them, but he's still at around 7 percent. Haley, by, in this one poll at least, is up at 11 percent behind DeSantis's 18 and Trump's 45 percent of the voter share. Looking at an Emerson poll that just came out, um, they have Ramaswamy at 9 percent, Haley at 7 percent. Um, and up from, she was what, idling around 2 maybe percent? Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, it, it, people certainly seem to have the most um, positive reaction to Ramaswamy and Haley, even though what they, were, opposite sides what they were the saying issue. was completely yeah. opposite, which you know goes to show you that it's more of just policies, but it's it's about um, you responding well to a candidate's mannerisms. Right, but there's and also multiple policies, but, and there's going to be people that maybe agree with yeah. Vivek on um, Ukraine, but agree with Nikki Haley on abortion. Right. Those I are mean, both big yeah. issues. No, for sure. Um, Actually, looking at the polling, it seems that DeSantis had a better night than any of us had, had predicted. predicted. Yes. Um, somehow, his because he didn't he didn't get called out a lot, and he didn't attack others very much. But something about his performance seemed to resonate actually better than he has in in the past, mm -hmm. giving a little bit of hope maybe to uh, to Team DeSantis. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, Vivek was talking to Glenn, mm -hmm. someone um, we're both acquainted with, who we talk about positively on the show a lot. Um, I, I am still struck, and I know I said this in the reaction last week, but how how the things how uh, what Vivek is saying about Ukraine in particular is so discordant with the rest of the candidates. DeSantis is a little bit on that too, but I, I think he's been accused of being insincere on it. Um, so discordant from the other candidates, but so obviously what the actual base wants. That it's 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 amazing to me, and that's probably a, a lot of what they talked about in their conversation. I don't. The donor thing is interesting. That sounded more like a you criticism, frankly. Well, um, you know, I think that Vivek is absolutely right about the influence of money in politics. The problem is he's able to make those kinds of claims because he's basically entirely self-funded. Um, he his net worth is just shy of a billion dollars. He's got a lot of money to burn, yeah. and he has substantially funded his own campaign. Now, on one hand, that means he's technically could be politically free from some of the influences of dark money in politics, but it also means that there isn't necessarily a real grassroots movement of people who are willing to give him money and support him. Now, it's still early days, and he's a relatively new name on the national stage, but there is some question about whether or not this is a fig leaf. Is this someone who's being propped up by the media in the same way that Pete Buttigieg was propped up by the media, or even a better example is Elizabeth Warren, who the media loved, but can never really get the grassroots dollars behind her campaign that were, I think, better evidence that there were real people who were willing to go no, out no, no. He's doing His media strategy is more similar, in my mind, to, like, frankly, to RFK Jr., um, um, in, in doing the, you know, doing the podcasts or mm -hmm. being willing to go on everybody's show. He's been on Rising in the past. Maybe we'll have him on again. Um, Talked to, a, a, an on, primarily through online media, although he's also, I mean, he says yes to all media, right? He says yes to, he's been on like Fox, he's been on CNN. Yeah, maybe like that. Although, I, don't, I mean, you know, Pete wasn't 
on Joe Rogan, obviously, on places like that. No, but but he, maybe he's on he, the maybe he's, he's on the a lot of credit. He he um, got a, he was given a lot of kudos for going on Fox, for going on Fox where yeah. other people wouldn't. And it was a little yeah. bit of a different media atmosphere where I think in 2020 those podcasts and things were definitely on the rise. For sure. Bernie going on Joe Rogan was a big moment, sure. but I think it was also kind of a turning point where people really realized the value of that alternative media in a way that they just didn't. It's a little apples apples to oranges comparison, I think. For sure. Vivek's definitely having a moment, and it will be interesting to see if that, it, it could obviously just be a moment. A lot of people were exposed to this person for the first time. Yeah. High degree of interest in him. He got a lot of screen time. Um, he was very interesting. He said a lot of interesting things. He was the most you know, searched for candidate, uh, the most talked about clearly on social media. Um, you know, maybe, and it could be, that could be it. Um, or we'll see if he builds this into something. I think that would be interesting yeah. to see. The other point I would just make is that you, you raised you raised the idea of can he be trusted, can people be trusted with respect to Ron DeSantis on Ukraine, feeling like he is opportunistically hopping on that issue because he sees the polls. Um, and is he going to stick to his guns once he's in office? Because even, I, I will give Donald Trump credit for not instigating any new wars, et cetera. But there were also things that, you know, he, he didn't withdraw from Afghanistan. Joe Biden did. Right. There were there was a bit of a mixed record on some of that I mean, he put stuff. the plan in motion to so, do it. So, I mean, fair, fair yeah. enough. I don't, I don't mean to take anything away from him, but, you know, there is, I think it's a legitimate question when someone has a very short um, political timeline, whether or not they are being opportunistic or they have real bona fides behind them. I do think his attitude about certain other foreign policy endeavors, for example, his uh, comments on China, suggest that there might not be a generalized principle of de-escalation and mm -hmm. not confronting other military powers. I know people are reading what he said about China, China and Taiwan in different ways. That's part of the problem. It's hard to know until he's in office. And that also reminds me of Barack Obama, who, because he had very little record when he came into the public sphere, was able to make all kinds of representations about who he was and what he would do that ended up not coming into fruition. So that's just a, a warning flag. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there, there was some yeah. additional reporting on his uh, his political history because a lot was made on him not voting and not you know previously having voted before the um, 2020 election, yeah. actually. Uh, there's some, a follow-up on that. He said he voted for the Libertarian Party yeah. uh, in 2004. That would be the, uh, the Bush-Kerry election. Mm -hmm. And then sat out the next several elections, even 2016, according to Reuters, before becoming a hardcore Trump person in 2020. Which is interesting in and of itself, right? Because, again, we're the exact same age. We're in the exact same class. I, I did not vote in that election, mostly because I was a mass uh, freshman who didn't know how to get her absentee ballot in, in order. <laughs> and I was sitting in acapella auditions watching the results come in and going, oh, no, <laughs> I should have voted. Not, I was not eligible to vote in 2004. I, 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 know, I know, I know, uh, sweet summer child. <laughs> but um, but I, I do remember the political climate, right? Uh, right. The, the mobilizing issue then was being anti-war. Yes. Um, and there were, to the extent that there was a kind of bipartisan anti-war critique that was happening, even the... Um, the gentleman Oliver Anthony of the Richmond, North of Richmond song has explained in videos how his politics were really motivated to be anti-war because of the movement that was happening at that time, around 2003, 2004. So it is interesting that Vivek Ramaswamy did vote in that election, but didn't—and the Libertarian right. vote is reflective of potentially of that. Exactly. For sure. Potentially. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I didn't vote till—well, I don't think I voted in the general election in 2008, but I, I voted in the Republican primary for Ron Paul, who is the most, by far, outspokenly anti-war candidate. Now, the Dana Bash interview made a lot of news on, uh, on Twitter over the week. So we should touch on that, if only briefly. Uh, what do you make of her line of questioning, which tried to get at the bottom of this? Is it 
honest? Is it intellectually honest? Is it fair to compare someone like Ayanna Presley to the KKK, saying that her statements would make the KKK proud, uh, modern grand wizards, quote, um, proud? and when that seems to, in Dana, Dana Bash's argument, ignore what the KKK was actually about, which was racial terrorism, killing black people and Jewish people. Um, substantively, I could say, just like we were saying in an earlier segment, if Putin says the sky is blue and I say the sky is blue, do I sound like Putin? Uh, is, is the idea of acknowledging race morally equivalent with a group that had the agenda of actually killing people because they believe them to be intellectually, morally, cognitively inferior, all of those kinds of you things. Probably guess what I'm going to say. <laughs> no, uh, you don't need to make that so, so comparison. But I don't know specifically what, I also don't know specifically what comment or statement by Ayanna Presley is being referenced I can here. tell you. Um, she said, uh, we don't need any more black faces that don't want to be a black voice. So she was talking about conservative people of color mm-hmm. who don't toe the line, as it were, mm-hmm. and who yeah, I, I, I think you can criticize that without um, making unfair or exaggerated comparisons. But uh, yeah, I agree. I wouldn't agree with her underlying statement. I think that it's not helpful what she said. But I do, I do have some questions about whether or not why does Vivek Ramaswamy, who's a smart guy and should be able to just say, oh, that wasn't, I should have said that differently. I should have put that differently. He keeps ending up in these like seven-minute colloquies about one narrow issue on the internet and on the, on the yeah. media because he won't just acknowledge that he's been using histrionic he's hyperbolic language in the past. He's a debate club guy and uh, he's class president energy. That's what I said on yeah. News Nation the other day. I think Jamel Bowie called it um, model UN energy, yeah. which feels right to me as well. <laughs> All, All right. right, more rising right after this. Is Barbie Joe Biden's ticket to another four years in office? Analysts over at MSNBC discussed the 2024 race this weekend and had the following take. This is Iowa. It's all the same except for gender. Everything else is the same on ideology, on college education. It is we are seeing more men identify as Republicans and more women not. Well, that's something that the Republican Party needs to deal with because there are a lot of women in this country. (laughs) And we just had the summer of Barbie and Taylor Swift um, tour. I mean, women are having a moment in this country where they have an economic impact. They are having a voice and they are they're going to want to go to the polls and and reflect that. I thought that's why I thought Nikki Haley did a good job in presenting that face. She potentially has room to grow if she can somehow get women to show up. So there's a lot of, you know, everybody's afraid of going after Trump, right? But if you look at primary polling, Trump's around 50, 52 percent. Half of the party isn't aboard. Now, if there's 10 people splitting the rest of the vote, that's a problem. But if you can consolidate... Now, the Biden campaign aides reportedly are not happy with California Governor Gavin Newsom. Biden loyalists consider Newsom's debate, potential debate with Ron DeSantis, to be a nuisance. An outside advisor to Vice President Kamala Harris reportedly commented on Newsom's possible debate move, saying, quote, it's disrespectful. Joe Biden is running with Kamala Harris. That's the Democratic ticket. Speaking of Vice President Harris, she spoke with Reverend Al Sharpton on MSNBC this weekend. Let's check in. You know, I think so much about, I, I, I talk about, you know, we talk about the arc. I think about it as also like a relay race and those who carried the baton and were measured by what they did when they had it and then they passed it to us. Yeah. yeah. And the point will be, what do we do while we're carrying the baton? Before we pass. Before we pass it. Understanding that the race will never be over. But the question is, what do you do 
in the time when you're carrying the baton. That's exactly right. right? Ah, most races end. But Nikki Haley again took to Twitter to remind her followers of Joe Biden's, quote, decline, continuing a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for President Kamala Harris. So how dare Gavin Newsom, you know, try to worm his way into political discord, national prominence when uh, when it's the summer of Taylor Swift and Barbie? <laughs> how dare he? OK, so for one, I, I do think that there is a lot to be gained by capitalizing on what appeals to women, but not, I don't think it's because Nikki Haley is a woman, it's because that most women in the country, most people in the country, but most women in the country, have a view on abortion that's far to the left of what uh, the Republican Party is backing right now, including some hardliners who would uh, advocate for a six-week abortion ban, which almost nobody likes. So Nikki Haley making her pitch during the debate as to how she would thread that needle, basically saying that even if you want something harsher, it's not going to happen in Congress. We might as well stop talking about it. And also, let's pass legislation on the things that we all agree on in her uh her characterization of late in life abortion is the, is a thing that we could uh, legislate around. I think is a smart move, but any candidate could pick up that right. baton and run with it, as Kamala Harris says, to use her her uh, metaphor, right. can, regardless of their own gender. I could feel conservatives responding you, to you, so I, to, to give voice to what they would say is. But also, the Democratic Party or most Democratic national officials have embraced an abortion policy that is much more progressive than most of the country as well that you know no, most I don't know if any Democrats trying to do a federal you must abort your baby at nine months okay. policy a, a, there, there should be no limits whatsoever right until birth on abortion no it's not that's absolutely not there's of course limits you of course there's limits viability has been largely adopted across the country moreover to the extent that in, that some people say that you can't have bans on end of life abortion end of term abortions it's because of things like when the baby is uh, gonna die anyway, right? Like, and you don't want to have to put the mother through the trauma of birth. Health risk is the mother. Those kind of exceptions have to be built in, unless you just want both the mother and well, baby to people, die. Most people, including the most process. Republicans, support that. But if you, but that's the thing. Democrat, the, the broad public agreement about how obviously you have to have emergency options in those kind of very niche situations that are tragic for the families involved is being characterized as Republicans as, oh, we want to lay late in term abortions. And they have they put these pictures out of people having DNCs, these like I understand like kind of horrific seeming operations where you do have to chop up a baby in the body to get it out of the mother. But those aren't done for for fun, sorry. Those aren't done just for, for, for people to get their jollies. It's medically indicated right. procedures only... to save the life of the mother. Right. And so weaponizing those kind of horrific moments that are so traumatizing for families to argue for things like a six-week abortion ban or to pretend there's more polarization in this country than there really is around this issue is kind of dark. And Nikki Haley, for what it's worth, is, I think, she was able to present the issues. I don't agree with her substantively, but she was able to present a middle ground that sounds so much more reasonable than a lot of these men in the Republican Party who have been chest beating about six-week abortion sure. bans and the like to the detriment of their party's Well, Mike successes. Pence is a social conservative. I, I, most, I think, I, I don't know that most of the candidates out there think there should be a national federal abortion policy. Chris Christie said he didn't think that. Yeah, most, um, most I don't know that Ron DeSantis thinks that. I don't know. I, they think that different states are going to, that this, this is a genuine I issue of 
substantive disagreement in the country, and different states are have a that have a different political valence or you're right. Most Republicans right or left are going to make different. Don't believe that. Even have a different. What is the weak cutoff? But when and you have we'll Lindsey Graham, when you have well, leaders, Lindsay, I'm yeah. sorry. When you have senior members of the of the Republican Party advocating for it, and when you have a Republican Party that always said, "Hey, we're going to turn these issues to the states. Don't worry about it. You'll be able to make your own decisions." Yeah. Now it's turned to the states, and you had half that stage at the GOP debate saying, "This is a moral issue. We can't actually leave it to the I states." I remember we Mike Pence saying that. Ron, Ron DeSantis, uh, sorry, Vivek Ramaswamy also doubled down on that, I believe. I, 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 I don't want to call what he said. And I, I want to say that Ron, uh, Ron Doug DeSantis Bergen pulled out well. his pocket constitution Doug, and said this constitution does not yes. allow the federal government to decide a national abortion policy. Bergen and Haley were, the only, were the only ones who really seemed to firmly say that we need to let the states do what they're going to do. Um, but there was, I think that the, the concern is, I saw a really good tweet about this over the weekend. The concern is that at this point, no one trusts what the Republicans are going to say on this issue because they already are perceived to have lied and are going farther. Some members of the party are articulating a desire to go farther than they ever said they would go. And so at this point, even if a Republican, even if the whole field actually responded to that question by clearly saying, we've achieved what we wanted to achieve at the Supreme Court level and now it's for the states to decide, a lot of Americans aren't going to believe it. And as you're seeing these state efforts across the country to strip away abortion rights on a state basis, that's part of why you're seeing Republican voters turn out to knock those efforts down and places like Kansas sure. and Ohio, states that are not blue bastions because they care about this issue sure. so much. Although, again, Georgia had an abortion measure as well. Uh, then Brian Kemp suffered no blowback for it. Um, so it's, I mean, it's a little bit more, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. I also think that 14, 14 weeks in six weeks, or the prospect of six weeks, also makes a big difference for people. Yeah. Yeah. 14 weeks, again, I say this all the time, is in keeping with France and uh, other, and the UK and other European yeah. countries. Well, this is where we get into the issue of how far are they actually willing to go, uh, and that that people don't trust. People don't trust the Republican Party anymore, and that's on the Republican Party. Uh, the last point uh, that came up in that clip that we didn't respond to, uh, Kamala Harris was uh, talking about the um, the civil rights uh, mm -hmm. anniversary today. It, it seems that actually I didn't find to be incoherent or cringy. I mean, it was just a weird. I, I think it's fine. Her, her pacing and tone is a, a little funny and easy to make fun of. Don't call it a race if it never a race specifically. It's, it's, a, me that it's ends. a metaphor. Well, it's a bad metaphor. I mean, it's uh, bad, okay. And I, I don't think it's a crime to have a bad metaphor. I think the worst crime is the Democratic Party's. Uh, insistence that there not be an actual debate or an actual primary. I love the idea. I, I have no fondness for Gavin Newsom from a policy perspective, but I love the idea that someone who has as much kind of credibility as a mainstream Democrat might be able to expose the undemocratic nature of how the Democratic Party is running this election season. Sure, a coronation for Joe Biden, and then next maybe a coronation for Kamala Harris in four years. Who yeah. knows? That yeah. seems like... I. I Expect that could be the way that some people in the party try to make it go. Obviously, Gavin Newsom will speak up more loudly um, when and if Joe Biden is out of the way. What do you make of Nikki Haley's approach there at the end to try to frame uh, a vote for Joe Biden as a vote for Kamala Harris? Is that an effective scare tactic for folks who might otherwise not come out to vote, come out to vote against Kamala Harris? I, maybe. I mean, it's getting at the underlying fact that you know, while we beat up on Biden a lot, you don't care for his policies from the left. I don't care for his policies from the right or from an individualist perspective, uh, he is, I think, still much more popular than Kamala Harris 
who nobody likes, so maybe she can. But enough to motivate people to turn out of their houses. I mean, and vote. Who, whoever, who is the vice president? The vice presidential candidate doesn't really matter for the standpoint of the election. It, it's, it matters to like pundits and like, oh, that person is that was a great pick because they bring the regional balance or the gender balance or the something balance. But it never really matters very. Yeah, much. I think that's a little silly. She got a lot of flack from people who were accusing her of being racist for making that argument it, that was anti-black. Oh, to I kind think of she was just saying front Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris. Is not good and, yeah, I and think that Kamala Harris isn't. Will be will I think certainly be emboldened by another Biden term and will be a very um, formidable Democratic Party establishment candidate in 2028 because of that. I think yeah, that's I think it's a bridge true. too far to accuse her of racism for that, but I I do think that it's silly and kind of beyond the point. She got a spike because she was talking about real issues that people cared about. I don't think that people are thinking about Kamala Harris enough as a threat or as anything other than kind of a punchline to a joke to try to leverage her into any political gains. Mm. Joe Biden is going to pass the baton to her <laughs> in the never-ending relay race of, right, of life that just goes on and on, as races do. More rising right after this. An Ontario judge has ruled against famed internet psychologist Jordan Peterson and upheld that he must attend social media training mandated by his employer, the College of Psychologists of Ontario. Now, according to reporting in CBC News, the college ordered Peterson to undergo a coaching program on professionalism in public statements. After receiving multiple complaints regarding his online rhetoric about women, gay people, and transgender people, and other political subjects. Meanwhile, new reporting into the identity of the man accused of shooting and killing a California store owner over her pride flag reveals 27-year-old Travis Ikaguchi frequently made anti-gay social media postings. Per reporting in Vice, Ikaguchi also, quote, followed and boosted Jordan Peterson and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and the, quote, right-wing satirical website, the Babylon Bee. All right. Uh, do you want to get into the Jordan Peterson part of this first? Sure. Um, yeah, look, I find this very concerning. Obviously, Canada is a place without a First Amendment, so his um, provocative political statements don't have the same degree of protection as they do here. Well, wait a minute. This is a professional, this is a professional organization and right. talking about how he can operate in an employment context. Is this not an argument that employers can set professional standards for their employees in terms of public media? I mean, this is a, it's a quasi-public-private thing because it's a licensing board, it's government-regulated, it, the college is a public college, so it's, to me, it's not, right, I would agree that your, your employer doesn't have to employ you, and if they don't like your social media presence, they can correct it, but can a professional, regulated licensing board take away your ability to make political statements and also keep your job? I don't think so. Yes, I mean, I don't they can't. I, well, I <laughs> Wait, they can, and they do all the time. Yeah, I, people get disbarred for all kinds of reasons all the time. Right. People, people shouldn't be disbarred for saying, uh, for expressing viewpoints that clash with the liberal establishment. Would be well. My that's point a, of view. a lot of yada 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 hand waving away what he's actually said. I don't think that Jordan Peterson has existed as a controversial political figure for what, like a decade now. I don't think he's being since like he's being. Um, uh, made to take these classes because he said, I like conservatives, or me personally, I don't like, I, I don't think that people should transition, or I don't think um, having, uh, being trans is a real thing. Those are statements that a lot, you know, 
people agree with and can make. It's been after many years of this kind of behavior, a kind of an escalation. And I think many people have had issues. For example, just over the weekend, he got into some hot water over a tweet where he responded to Mehdi Hassan uh, doing a monologue about the horrific Jacksonville murder where a self-described racist with a swastika on his gun targeted and mowed down and murdered three black people, including a 19-year-old kid. Um, he responded to Mehdi Hassan's monologue about how terrible that was, saying, uh, you're not really brown, more like a light tan, just like white people, plus you're a Caucasian by definition, buddy. So as part of his monologue, Mehdi made reference to the fact that he's a, he himself is brown and perhaps feels invested in anti-racism and people not running around shooting people because of the color of their skin. And Jordan Peterson makes this kind of a comment. Now, I think the question from a professional board is, do you want someone who is randomly going around in a very high-profile way making weird racial essentialist arguments about hosts of news programs? Is that, show, is that uh, diminishing the credibility of your organization? And professional boards have all kinds of ethics standards about not having relationships with clients, about not having drug use, things that are legal but perhaps not allowed by the professional organization. And you can pick a bone with that, but acting like he's being targeted when people have been censored for wearing their hair certain ways and having all kinds of just uh, not unprofessional behavior. We could do a whole segment about that being inappropriate as well. Like, this is, I, yes, I am, I, am, I am objecting to this, to a purely based on the things he tweets, um, attempt to punish or sanction him, has nothing to do with, he, he, he notes in this um, column for, um, the National Post that he doesn't you know, he doesn't practice any like he doesn't take clients on anymore because his national profile is too great like it's not people people are not bringing an issue before the board that they were in a counseling session with him and and, and he has unethical behavior based on anything. But it, it, but it doesn't have to be. There was actually a case, I wish I could pull it up, I was struggling to find it just now. Um, there was a psychologist here in the United States who took to Twitter and was weighing in on some of these kind of pop culture Twitter viral mm -hmm. moments. I think it had to do with the relationship dispute between people. And she took the side, I think, of the woman very strongly in a way that people argue, given that I think she was a couples counselor, a relationship counselor of some kind, diminished her potential client's ability to see her as a fair actor. And she was... Um, rebuked for that from the professional organization because there are these standards about how you can behave on social media because you are a mental health practitioner for for perfectly good professional reasons. There are these standards, but that doesn't mean they're being enforced in any logical way or that they are themselves a good thing. I think of well, California trying to, being... what's the evidence that he's harmed any of his clients? That's not the question. You're, I'm that not, should be the question. No. The argument here is that he is being targeted. So you have to provide evidence of targeting and not that, that this is... This, in They're the making course. him submit to social media re-education right. training. But who else has done that? What other cases well, exist? How does this okay, distinguish well, him from everybody well, else who's been censored this all year? Maybe those cases are BS too. That doesn't mean this. Maybe, is but like you guys, you got to make an argument. You can't just say the argument is that he should not be subjected to this. Okay, then you're arguing against the existence of professional guidelines in, psych in the psychiatric practices in Canada. That that's insane. 
I'm sorry, that's not a that's not a real thing. I can sit here all day and say, well, I prefer that my job didn't have any dress code. I could I could, I prefer a lot of things. I prefer that I have a four day week. I prefer a lot of things that aren't the requirements of a job. And maybe I should advocate for those. I I very much support a four day work week and think that people should be advocating and unionizing and trying to get changes to those things. And if Jordan Peterson wants to link up with other psychologists or psychiatrists who feel like the professional rules of that organization are outdated and need to be changed and updated in the world of social media, I think that's a legitimate cause. But if people are going to make the case that the right is being attacked and targeted in this way, which might be true, they have to make the case and show how he is being treated differently or unfairly under guidelines that broadly I'm saying apply. he's being treated differently. I'm saying he should not be subjected to this for merely tweeting his views in the same way that California tried to have that law to, um, to again, not criminalized because you would just be stripped as your post as a doctor for, you know, sharing medical misinformation. And this bill was a disaster. And even like the ACLU spoke out against it, even though it would just be in the context of, right, a, a like the, the licensing board association type thing. But of course, that is a, you know, strictly regulated government quasi-public entity that does that. It was a bad bill and it was opposed by the ACLU on free speech grounds. That's similarly how I feel about this. Yeah. What do you make substantively of his choice to argue that... I, I was having trouble making sense of what his argument was to Mehdi Hassan because it seems to me that even if you thought Mehdi was white, which just for the sake of argument, even if you agreed with Jordan Peterson that Mehdi was white, I'm, I'm curious what bearing that has on his ability to make an argument about... Uh, uh, anti-black shooter, uh, anti-Semitic shooter. I have no idea what he was bad. trying to say, but I despise Mehdi Hassan, so I don't. Care. All right. Well, I certainly <laughs> don't feel that way about Mehdi Hassan. That's a very strong word to use about someone. Um, uh, but I, I, I certainly wouldn't even use that word about Jordan Peterson. I'm just really what confused. Word? What are we talking despised. About? Oh, I would um, certainly use that. It, it does seem like for a lot of these professional organizations, like the law, like psychology. There is a credibility issue in your relationship with your client. And there are risks in being too open about your personal beliefs, not because it's like bad to have certain personal beliefs, but whatever your beliefs are one way or the other, it could affect your therapeutic relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and that's why there is this usually a social like a clinically accepted line between what the therapist reveals about themselves in their lives and what you obviously sure. bring to the table in therapy. And I do think that you know, he, you know, well, he, he, that, but he, well, he does accept that because he said he stopped seeing clients for exactly that reason. Right. But that's the thing. Like, well, if you stop seeing clients, then why, why the need to hold on to your license if you're not maintaining the professional obligations of someone that has a, that someone that has the license and uses the license for clinical treatment should have. I, I have not kept up my bar license because I don't care. I never want to be a lawyer again. And so you can't get me on any of these, but he seems to have some like attachment to it. He says he worked what hard. They, what did they, they, they say you have on professional well, Social I, media presence. I, I haven't paid a dues in a million years. I, like well, I'm not be, in the it organization. Be, it would be BS, though. Right, but it doesn't matter to me. I'm not. Well, I, I can't. I don't have any investment in an organization I'm not a part of. Having thoughts and feelings about my behavior, they have no actual power. It's a professional organization, and the power only exists if you want to take advantage of the resources that you get from being in the organization. And it seems like Jordan Peterson wants to have it both ways. If you want to belong to a professional organization, sometimes there are rules. If you want to join the golf club, you got to wear slacks and whatever the dress code All right, is. But it's not just—it's not just an informal club that has no government structure. Or no, it's, it's a professional right. organization. Right. It's a licensing organization, and there's requirements for a regulated. license. Is it okay? Well, next thing you know, it's going to be a free speech violation that they won't let me be a lawyer if I don't pass the bar. <laughs>
It's just a club. <laughs> the club uh, requires closed-toed shoes. No, that's not a free speech violation. I don't care about that. Fine. All right. Uh, what's, what's the second part of this story? Uh, the oh, the, uh, the the killer. The uh, the uh, the attack in the. Um, oh right. We should touch on that since we mentioned it in the opening. Look again. I, I mean, I keep saying the same thing when we talk about all these horrific and again not particularly representative um, violent episodes that do seem to involve um, actual political maliciousness that is not representative of crime in general but is always a national news story when you know people are killed for what are more mundane reasons, I guess, so it makes it's not news as much, but, okay, it just matters to you that this person liked Jordan Peterson or uh, or RFK Jr. or whoever else, you know, run with that, I guess. You can say that conservatives run with it if the person they like is some liberal or leftist person, I guess. Well, I just don't I, see where I'm this gets us, and I don't care. Blame, I think but it's going important. forward, if, if I knew that there were people who were following me in my show, who took my, let's say, strident criticism of the Democratic Party as evidence that they should do some physical harm to Democrats, I would make sure in the wake of that horrific incident to be clear that this is not a fight that's being fought on an individual level. This is not a war and that human lives are valuable. And that as much as I criticize people's policies, you absolutely should never do any harm or disrespect people's fundamental humanity by taking away their lives. And I in no way endorse that kind of behavior. And regrettably, we never see those kinds of statements from people like Jordan Peterson or Tim Poole in the wake of these tragedies. They simply say, it wasn't my fault. And that's their choice. Mm. All right, we will have more Rising right after this. Are aliens traveling to Earth using dark energy propulsion? Well, Harvard astronomer Abby Loeb wrote a paper last year about how gravity and dark energy could hypothetically be manipulated to enable humans to travel through space. So are aliens using this same system? Here to discuss this possibility is Dr. Abby Loeb himself. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. So last time we talked, you were uh, on your boat uh, in it was uh, the, the the South Atlantic. Is that right? Or South Pacific? Uh, uh, yeah, Pacific. OK. And you were dredging up these spherical uh, objects from the ocean floor that you argue are interstellar in nature. In other words, they came from outside of the solar system uh, and ended up dispersing into these tiny particles. Remind us again of what evidence exists that you think suggests that those are part of extraterrestrial life? Well, um, this uh, meteor that was more than half a meter in size uh, was spotted by U.S. Uh, government satellites back in 2014, almost a decade ago. It was moving very fast, uh, actually faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun when it was outside the solar system. It came from interstellar space based on its speed, the speed recorded by the U.S. Uh, Space Command. And uh, moreover, it had material strength that was tougher than all the space rocks cataloged by NASA over the past decade. So that raised the possibility that it's a Voyager-like meteor. Uh, in other words, imagine our own spacecraft, Voyager, uh, leaving the solar system and colliding with a planet like the Earth. Uh, it would appear as a meteor. Uh, and uh, the question is, is the unusual material strength and speed of that object a testimony to the fact that it's artificial, technological in origin? So we went to the Pacific Ocean uh, to retrieve uh, the materials from uh, this object. We found the 700 
spherules. These are molten droplets from the surface of the object when it exploded the, over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, we brought them uh, back to Harvard University. We used the best uh, mass spectrometer that the world uh, has to offer. And we now have the analysis results that will be discussed uh, in a press, conf uh, press release. Uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, August 29th, uh, 2023. Uh, I can give you the punchline. Uh, the punchline is basically the title of my book. And this book appears tomorrow as well. Hmm. So it, Interstellar, is that, a, is that a suggestion that you have some confirmation that this is, in fact, uh, interstellar particles that are evidence of some intelligent life from outside of our solar system? Well, uh, there are two fundamental questions. First, is the material itself from outside the solar system? That's the question that we are addressing mm -hmm. in this new scientific paper, which was just submitted for publication. Uh, the second uh, is, of course, whether the, uh, this object was technological in origin. And the best way to address that uh, second question would be to find a big piece of the object. That will be our follow-up uh, expedition. Uh, because you can easily tell the difference between a piece of a rock and a technological gadget that may have buttons on it. Now, at the end of last month, it seemed like, I mean, I don't want to characterize it as a hit piece, but the New York Times published a paper which included some criticisms from some of your colleagues about your work, people who questioned whether or not um, these spherical objects really are what you believe them to be, and questioning some of the uh, math that is included in the trajectories as you've been and, and analyzing you know, why you believe it's uh, interstellar, what would actually happen if an interstellar object at the velocity that you described hit the earth, would there be anything left at all? And I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the argument that there are some inaccuracy here that would suggest that this is not, in fact, evidence of extraterrestrial life. Well, I don't need to respond because I have the material and we examined it and stay tuned for tomorrow. The point is these people expressed opinions. The U.S. Space Command came forward in a formal letter to NASA a year, more than a year ago. Uh, in March 2022, where they said that at the 99.999% are confident that this uh, meteor came from outside the solar system. We went out there, we found the spherules that uh, very likely belong to this meteor, and moreover, we analyzed their composition. Irrespective of the speed, we can tell if the materials are different from solar system materials. And, uh, you know, it's not a matter of an opinion. I don't need to defend it because we have the materials. You see, there are, uh, there are two other types of people than real scientists. Real scientists seek the evidence, analyze the, the evidence, all the materials, and get to conclusions. But there are two other types of people. People who have opinions and talk about it forever, and people who are cheering for the work of science. They just publicize science, they talk about science, just like, uh, you know, movie commentators. They don't direct films, they just talk about the films being produced. And you have to distinguish between people who talk and people who walk the walk, who <laughs> actually do the work of science. I'm talking about a scientific paper that we wrote, that I'm the first author on, submitted for publication with results that took us months to uh, derive based on analysis of data of materials that we have in our possession. Everyone that expressed opinions about this did not have access to those materials.
Yeah, there's certainly a lot of interest in this topic right now. Uh, in fact, investigative reporter Ross Coulthart claimed to know the, quote, form of non-human biologics recovered by the U.S. government. Let's watch that. Um, just a quick question in regards to the non-human intelligence. Do you know what form it's in and can you tell us? I do. <laughs> um, well, at least I, I do know what I've been told, um, and I, I'm sorry I, I can't go there at the moment. Um, I'm working on further revelations to come out very soon. I promise you that when I'm able to talk about that, I will. Um, it's for a very, very good reason. It's to protect largely sources and methods who are helping me, and um, you'll see why soon. What are your thoughts on these claims of non-human biologics? Do you think it's possible that the form, that those form is actually known by these whistleblowers, or is your work, you know, so different or concentrated in such a different um, area that y y it's, uh, it it's sort of a totally separate thing? No, no, I mean, it's all, uh, science is all about the evidence. The, if the U.S. government has uh, some uh, materials that demonstrate uh, or substantiate these claims, let's see it. But if people just talk about it, it doesn't amount to much because uh, people can fabricate stories. So uh, telling the difference between what people talk about and what is really out there is the key here. It's not a matter of opinions because we are dealing with materials with something that was retrieved according to Grash. And actually, Grash himself did not witness, according to him, uh, any of those materials. So he just listened to uh, 40 eyewitnesses who told him about these things. And I believe him, you know, he's sincere, but the question is whether they fabricated the story or not. And until we see the evidence, I would not be convinced because as a scientist, I, I'm just guided by evidence. There are lots of people who talk, but let's, you know, let's keep our eyes on the ball, as they say in uh, basketball. Yeah, I think that's such an important point because uh, you would expect that some of the witnesses would not just be, let's say, fighter pilots who saw an identified craft in the sky. But if what is, being, what is being said is true about having alien bodies in custody, ships in custody, that I would like to hear that a material analyst, a, a, a physicist, a chemist, a uh, some, somebody with a scientific background who I would presume the government set to actually researching and understanding what it is that's before them, would be among the whistleblowers, and that the kind of data that we could be, could be getting, the kind of um, reporting that we could be getting secondhand from those whistleblowers is not just, I saw the thing, but there was this life form that was comprised of these elements that aren't available on Earth. Just the way that you've described the alloys and these spherical objects as being of a, a nature that wouldn't be naturally occurring on the planet. So, so that's very persuasive. And I understand the people with firsthand knowledge being concerned about coming forward and the nature of a whistleblower and all of that. But it, I would expect that the nature of some of the disclosures to be a little bit more specific, a little more substantive, a little bit more evidence-based than just, I saw the thing. I don't know. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, one issue about uh, biology is that, uh, you know, um, life as we know it here on Earth, uh, developed, you know, based on Darwinian uh, evolution, such that it survives under the circumstances 
here on Earth, you know, where we have an atmosphere, we have liquid water. Going to space is very risky for biological creatures because there is bombardment by cosmic rays, energetic particles. Um, and uh, it takes a long time, you know, for objects moving uh, at the, the speed of our spacecraft, it would take half a billion years to traverse the Milky Way galaxy. And, you know, that that's a very long time for any form of life to survive. And of course, we found uh, some uh, worms in the Siberian uh, permafrost that survived for 46,000 years uh, frozen. Uh, but, um, you know, our biology is still not uh, uh, advanced enough to allow us to imagine that you can survive a trip of millions or billions of years. Uh, and so I would be skeptical until they show us the evidence. And uh, other than that, you know, I would think that it's probably if there are any functional devices, they would be all about technology, you know, with artificial intelligence. That would be my tendency. Uh, and by the way, uh, David Grush uh, ventured into territories that he is not an expert on. He was talking about physics that may explain the kind of things he heard. Uh, I can tell you as a physicist, this made very little sense. Hmm. Mm. Thank you so much for filling us in. Uh, your work uh, fascinates us. We can't wait to have you back very soon. Uh, Dr. Loeb, thank you. Thanks for having me. Trial proceedings in federal prosecutors 2020 election case against former President Donald Trump will begin on March 4th, 2024. That's just one day after Super Tuesday. Judge Tanya Chutkan ruled that while Trump has the right to prepare, quote, the public has a right to prompt and efficient resolutions of this matter. Now, Trump's lawyers requested the trial be delayed until 2026. However, Chutkin argued that it cannot and should not depend on the defendant's professional obligations, a nod to Trump's busy 2024 campaign schedule, noting that if a professional athlete were on trial, it would be inappropriate to set a trial date to accommodate her schedule. Mm. Now, the former president has yet to respond to these new developments. However, he did engage in some mid-morning competition bashing. Uh, rumors are strong in political circles that Ron DeSantis, whose presidential run is a shambles and whose poll numbers have absolutely crashed, putting him in third and fourth in some states, will be dropping out of the presidential race in order to run in Florida against Rick Scott for Senate. Now, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Of course, that mm. was a uh, tweet from Donald Trump. It's very many people are saying back on rumors, the app. rumors. Who is spreading this rumor? <laughs> I think it's Donald Trump. Right. So one part I of the I have not heard this rumor. <laughs> One aspect of this news is that Donald Trump and came back in onto Twitter in amazing fashion. To share his mugshot. Share his mugshot. Amazing sense of uh, communication strategy, media and It is wild to, if you scroll through, 10. like his last tweet was, and no, I will not be attending the uh, <laughs> the um, uh, the convocation. Uh, what do I say? The uh, swearing the in of Biden. Mm -hmm. The inauguration. Uh, thank you very much. And then the next one is his mugshot <laughs> years later. Uh, yeah. And it obviously became a very popular image very quickly. And now he's back on the app and it looks like we're going to move into the world where he is able to control largely the media narrative by tweeting out yeah. his thoughts, feelings and opinions. Now, people did perceive Ron DeSantis to do less well in the debate 
than perhaps a front runner should. He did seem to fade into the bushes a little bit uh, as the, the appearances of uh, Nikki Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy took center stage. Mm -hmm. But he was still literally center stage, and most polls still have him, you know, strongly in second place. We did reference some that had uh, Vivek making some gains, Nikki Haley making some more significant gains. Uh, but he still remains on. I mean, DeSantis, according to uh, Fox News Digital, uh, for Iowa specific. Um he has risen from 14 to 21 percent. Um, I mean, he's, he's running a—and and Trump actually slid just a percentage from 42 to, to 41. I mean, that's, you know, 41 to 21. That is a little bit close. That's not quite the 50 and everybody else is in single digits. DeSantis has spent a lot of time in Iowa. Mm -hmm. He's concentrating very much on an all-in Iowa uh, mm -hmm. uh, strategy. strategy. Look, it's not—you cannot discount him totally out no. yet. He could pull up. Uh, pull off a, a surprise win, a uh, big win in Iowa, and use that momentum to carry himself forward to other to other primaries. Um, I, I pointed out many times that uh, the t 2008 race, which was very chaotic, had Rudy Giuliani ahead right now, not as much as Trump's ahead by, but uh, but eventually the you know McCain pulled off a New Hampshire win and was able to take the nomination. So it's not it's not totally over. Yet. No, the media just wants it to be. They I think the liberal be. media and the conservative, I mean, all the media has been dancing on DeSantis' grave because it makes for a good narrative. Because he isn't the most likable, yeah. charming, or charismatic guy. You have whole media cycles devoted to, oh, he looked putting off his, his fingers or other kinds of gaffes that aren't really gaffes. People sure. love to enjoy the awkward smiles or some debate moments where he does come off as kind of inhuman, but not substantive. Those aren't substantive critiques of him. So now we have a trial date for Trump. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's around Super Tuesday. Um, I think, obviously, the judge is right that it's just because he's running for president doesn't, you know, obligate uh, the legal system to accommodate him, just like it's any other professional obligation. I understand that. And I'm, again, struck by just the, the enormous um, difficulty from a, from a scheduling perspective Trump will have having to deal with the, all these legal matters and campaign at the same time. It's going to be very exhausting. It's going. I mean, the trials will be the campaign, but you know, from the standpoint of winning the general election, you you need to. Uh, Republicans have to understand that Trump has to, if he's the candidate, make an affirmative pitch to people who did not vote for him last time, or just help that people hope that people are so disillusioned with Biden, not enough of them are going to show up. But really, you let you know he's got to win back. Michigan. He's got to win back Pennsylvania. He's got to win back Arizona. He's got to win back Georgia. How do you do that if you're not in those states? Uh, well, I mean, he'll be in Georgia. The other states where there's no <laughs> indictment. He has to visit them. He has to talk to working people, you know, people who've swing voters who've gone back and forth and make a case that he needs, he deserves another chance at this. And I just have to think from a practical standpoint, set aside everything you actually think about the merits of the criminal indictments. That is going to be so much harder for him to do because of all this going on. And Republican primary voters may want to factor that into their decision making. But they've shown no inclination to do that thus far. I think that if Donald Trump sold indictment tour t-shirts with the mugshot on the face and the tour right. dates that are in the cities where he's being indicted on the back, he could fund uh, at least enough surrogates to go to the, all the other states it's to good, cover it's his good bases. Content, but well, look, I, I do think that it is likely that some conservatives will be uh, characterizing the choice to get a speedy trial here as a political one. It's been really interesting to watch people on the right who don't typically have these same critiques of the criminal justice system 
suddenly see them with new, fresh eyes when it's Donald Trump, a you know, multi-billionaire elite who is being subject to the conditions that so many poor people are subject to in the criminal justice system. Generally speaking, a speedy trial is considered to be a boon for folks, many of whom don't have the money to get out of jail on bail and who are in jail before they've ever been convicted on a crime for a crime for very long periods of time. And we have all these speedy trial rules to ensure that people get trials as soon as possible. In this particular instance, it is interesting that that seems to disadvantage Donald Trump, the feeling being that once he is president of the United States, he won't be able to go to jail, that he can use certain political avenues to pardon himself. People have different theories about the ability of that in various ones of these cases, but that seems to be the strategic advantage of why his team wants to put this off. So people are going to characterize this as a kind of a, a, a fast-tracked political prosecution, but it is worth noting all of the things that are critiques here, the idea that the, the jail conditions are bad, that the food in the jail conditions are bad. There were so many conservatives that were talking about how horrible the Fulton County Jail is. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And we need to think about this, uh, what kind of system we have. Is the, crime, is the punishment for a crime incarceration, or is it being tortured right. in these other intangible ways that are not specifically provided for um, in, in our kind of uh, sure. stated it's, laws. It's in similar to, system. you know, when they were going after Trump and Trump uh, act like the, the wiretapping, the, the FISA warrants, the surveillance, the Patriot Act era uh, policies, and, and some conservatives like for the first time are apoplectic that this right. is being used to target them, but other, and then, and you know, other more libertarian leaning Republicans and civil libertarian leftists have been saying forever that these, yeah. these uh, policies are very bad. And now it's, now you only care because it's affecting Trump. Right. It's been affecting people for yeah. forever. If anything good can come of this, uh, I'm, I welcome it. If this opens Trump's mm. eyes to criminal justice reform, even more so, he did make some, some inroads when he was in president with the, what was it called? The stop, stop act uh, yeah. with fan, Van Jones. Van Jones. Sorry, right. Van Morrison. But what am I doing in my brain? We're, fi yeah. we're filling in each other's gaps today. It's teamwork, it's great. Bobby. Love to see uh, it. Now, Mehdi Hassan had a slightly different take. Let's play some of that. One that long precedes his presidency and his political career. He has had a problem with people of color for decades. We know he especially has a problem with black people, and we know above all else that he has a real issue with black women, with strong black women. Don't take my word for it. Take Donald Trump's. He led a chant of send her back against Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and even spread vile and racist conspiracy theories about her personal life. He called Vice President Harris nasty and disrespectful and just this week mocked the way she talks. She speaks in, uh, in rhyme. In, uh, it's weird. It's weird, but she has bad moments. And in rhyme? What do you well, the way she talks, the bus will go here, and then the bus will go there, because that's what buses do, and it's weird. He accused Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson of being disrespectful. There it is again. Towards the white GOP senators who were questioning her. And even his own former advisor, Omarosa Manigault Newman, wasn't spared. He called her a black woman a dog. And yes, Donald Trump insults everyone and anyone, but there is something particularly vicious and bigoted to his rhetoric around black women. So there is a huge irony to the fact that at the center of his many legal troubles right now are three strong black women. How stunning and brave. Yeah, this is problematic for a couple of reasons. One is that Democrats have strategically put 
black and black female prosecutors in positions of power across the country, largely to insulate themselves against claims that they are backing criminal justice policies that negatively impact the black community. And Kamala Harris, ironically enough, is exactly, exactly one example yeah. of that, someone who beat out a much more progressive prosecutor in her first uh, DA race in San Francisco, uh, largely on the idea that because she was black, she was going to ephemerally be good for black people, and that clip, speaking. And uh, that he played of Donald Trump's remarks about Kamala Harris were not, They're not a racist. compelling example, she's, whatever, of him saying a racist thing rhyme. about Kamala Harris. It's We've had that exact same criticism. <laughs> Mehdi Hassan probably thinks I'm racist. I'm, I've too, look, I've definitely know, been, been called racist, anti-black, and anti-woman. I've been accused of being white for um, leveraging some of these criticisms of Kamala Harris way back in 2018, 2017, I think, was my first article that was cr criticizing the way identity, identity politics was being used to uh, push forward people like her that I perceived to be um, actually conservative in their ideolo ideology about criminal justice reform, uh, et cetera. And so I'm no stranger to those kinds of critiques, but I do think my advice to many would be that I, I know that you think it's helping, but I, I think, think it actually diminishes the credibility of black women and makes us targets um, when you attribute their this certain kind of political behavior to race, especially when their political behavior is antithetical to the interest of the bulk of black women who are working class and poor like most people in this country. Yeah, it was a weird use of identity politics there. That does it for us for today, but it's just Monday, so we've got the full week ahead of us. Lots of exciting news to get to. Tomorrow, we'll be back, and we'll be getting into some of that. <laughs> All right, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen, while you're on the move, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.